No, turn to Luke chapter 6. We have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we come to a section here that is well known. As you're turning there, let me ask a few questions to kind of set the stage. Do you know about the popular Jesus? The popular Jesus is the one of the national prayer breakfast, the guy who makes an entrance in political speeches. The popular Jesus is the guy whom your secular friends quote. And what do you think is the most accepted and frequented quote from the popular Jesus, but judge not, right? That's one of the most favorite sayings of the popular Jesus. And the popular Jesus is made up by the combination of knowing very little of the words and actions of Jesus himself and reading your values and your opinions into one of his sayings that you do encounter. So one example of this reading of Judge Not is now using it as a supporting evidence for displaying diversity in the world. Or hearing Judge Not and not being so harsh when you see sin. Just, just go a little easy. We all sin, you need to take it easy. And, and we can enroll the popular Jesus into any situation possible. It's easy. Just read his words out of context, even just a phrase, and preferably apply it to your viewpoint that you already have come to And use Jesus' words to reinforce your thinking, to reinforce your argument. Use Jesus to make your argument strong. Just think of some of the greatest acts in the world, from pacifism to just war, from slavery to abolition, from capitalism to Marxism. Jesus has been claimed by different sides in all these arguments. In that sense, Everyone can employ their own popular Jesus. But one absolutely necessity for you to have your own popular Jesus is for you to avoid reading or studying Jesus' own own life and teaching. You have to avoid it. Don't read your Bible. And if you do read your Bible, read it out of context. Because then you will have your own popular Jesus. Choose verses from here and from there, and then over there, and then over here, and you will have your own popular Jesus. Because too much acquaintance with the real Jesus in the context of what he says will make your popular Jesus vanish. Because when you study the real Jesus and his real words and the context of when he said them and why he said them, the real significance of what he says becomes apparent. And too often we find the agenda of Jesus overtakes our agenda. It removes it. And guess what happens? Guess what happens when you read Jesus' words in proper context? You're changed. Because what we brought to a certain passage was self-serving and an argument to serve our own agenda. And now we see Jesus in context, in his own words, in his own desires, and it overtakes our agendas and we become more like him. So have you heard the, this quote, the, the, the quote of judge not attributed to Jesus? Have you heard that before? Would it shock you to know that he actually said it? Jesus said, judge not. But he said it in a context of greater teaching to a greater point. He said it in a way to help people to judge better. 
He wasn't outlawing judging. He said this to help people to judge, to help people judge between religious leaders and competing thoughts on how to live a godly life. See, one set of teachers was marked by a judgmentalism that would exclude Jesus from forgiving sin and from loving sinners. They were judging him from rejoicing about himself and from reaching out to the social outcasts or from serving those with physical needs. And their judging was typical during Jesus' day. They were shallow and self-serving, and they used their judging to wrongly limit love. But here in Luke 6, we see Jesus raising up a new breed of religious leaders who would be his disciples and follow his way and not their own way. And so the point of this section here this morning is that they were not to be marked, marked by the same type of wrong judging that was so common in their time. It was popular. And Jesus is teaching them, judge not in the sense that the Pharisees had been judging and even loving in the wrong way. And he would teach his disciples to love, as we saw last week, to judge false teaching, to, to judge false judges. He's teaching them discernment. And, and it's an amazing discernment that's, that's built on love. So let me ask you, are you popularizing Jesus? Are you, are we feeding on misinformation about who Jesus is and what Jesus teaches? Are you quick to take Jesus' words out of context to serve your way of life, to reinforce your thinking of how life should be lived and how we should respond to people? Are we guilty of preaching or, or teaching about the popular Jesus rather than the Jesus of the Bible? This is the main thrust that I will endeavor to make in, in the sermon this morning. That's not just sermon, okay? That's just the introduction, all right? So if you write anything else down, here's the main idea uh, to try to encapsulate this, and it should be up on the screen there. Jesus came not to give new rules to obey, but he actually came to give new life to those who follow him. Jesus came not to give new rules to obey, but he actually came to give new life to those who follow him. So who are you following with your life? Who are you trusting in? Are you, are you following the, the popular Jesus or the real Jesus from the Bible? That's the question. Let's see, if, let's see if I can answer it this morning. So number one, first point here, Jesus' Jesus's, Jesus's followers are gracious with others. Jesus' followers are gracious with others. Look at Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. So let me set a scene here, okay? There's a Christian woman who's been friends with another woman for many decades. They've been through it all, thick and thin, but in the last few years, they've, they've seemed to grow apart because of busyness and their kids' high school activities. They've grown apart. But, but recently, in their relationship, one of them hurt the other in a very deep way. And the other is torn up over it. It's incredibly painful, especially because they've known each other for so long. The relationship's been through thick and thin, through all sorts of issues. And, and she thinks, how could she do this to me? And so she begins discussing things with her husband. And she can't sleep. There's, there's no peace She's bothered by this, and she runs through her, her mind each scenario and why her friend would do this thing that hurts so deeply. 
And, and then she begins to imagine all sorts of motives. And yet she decides one morning that she isn't going to dwell on the unknown and presume on the motives of her long-term friend. She's resolved that she's going to talk with her, and until then, she's going to give the benefit of the doubt. She's going to wait to pass judgment. Is that the proper application of this verse? Absolutely. Most certainly. But let's change the scene. You're, you're in a members meeting, okay? And there is a serious issue that's been brought up, a sin that has become public to the church family. It's most definitely not a secret sin anymore. It's been manifested itself among the congregation and it's causing issues and, and it needs to be addressed. But one member stands up as it's been talked about and quotes this verse, judge not and you will not be judged. And everyone in the members meeting pulls back in fear. They don't want to call it sin. We need to let it go. Is that what the application of Jesus' words here? Most certainly not. But what if in that same scene, another person stands up and shares their love for this member? They care for them. They're dedicated to pray for them, to encourage them. But if their sin is public and they've refused to repent, then we must move forward in gently and corporately calling them to repentance. Is that faithful application of this verse? Yes, most definitely. This is what Jesus is teaching us here this morning. Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So when he says not to judge, he's teaching us not to treat people unfairly or unjustly in the court of our own opinion. As I said earlier in verse 37, it's one of the few Bible verses that, that secular people seem to know. But even not only to secular people, but even it's, it's not misunderstood just out there, it seems to be misunderstood in here, in the church. And why is that? Because people think that any judging of others is wrong, and especially wrong for religious people. Judging people is one of the ultimate sins in our culture. No one likes to be judged. People prefer to set their own standards and to adjust them as they live. The last thing they want to have is someone telling them that what they should or shouldn't do. But Jesus' words here are teaching us there are times to judge, but we're not to be judgmental. A judgmental person is someone who reaches unjust conclusions about someone else's motives. A judgmental person is quick to criticize and putting people in the worst possible light. They also seem to lack any sense of proportion. So small offenses receive the same angry response that should be reserved for large, destructive sins. And Jesus is warning against this. This is the attitude of the religious teachers in Jesus' day. And we've already seen this, haven't we? If we just look back in, into early chapter 6, the disciples you know, are walking through the fields, and they, they pluck grain in their fingers, and they, and they rub it together, and the teachers are upset because they broke the man-made rules for the Sabbath. And then Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And what are they ready to do in verse 11? Look there. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Friends, that's, that's code for they want to eliminate Jesus. They want to end him. They're condemning Jesus. And Jesus now is warning his disciples in our passage of, of following the same standard of the Pharisees. 
Instead, he says, we're, to call, we're called to forgive others and offer them generous grace. In the last half of the verse, Jesus is drawing the contrast between two attitudes of the heart. One is judging and condemning, the other is giving and forgiving. A lot of people are ready to write off others because they struggle or fail, but Jesus is calling us as believers to have a different attitude. We're to live differently because we're different. And Jesus is going to get into that the rest of the chapter with the illustrations of the tree and fruit and the house that's built on the rock. But here he calls us to have an attitude of forgiveness. A forgiving person is one who, out of the profound sense of being personally forgiven of their great debt by God, is quick to ask forgiveness from others. They also put away retaliation and anger and bitterness. But they offer forgiveness freely and frequently. The world doesn't necessarily understand forgiveness like we should as believers. And why is that? Why should we as believers be really good at forgiveness? Because as Christians, we know the truth about ourselves. We have seen the depth of our own sin, and we know we need a rescue. And we know we can't save ourselves. We know we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need Jesus, and we know it. A forgiving spirit is evidence that God has forgiven you. If we lack a forgiving spirit, then friends, it's a reason to pause and to consider ourselves and what we know about God. Jesus says in verse 38 here, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. And this, this, this is a picture of the entirely positive things that we, 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 we live out and we receive in Christianity. To give is more than just to give someone the scraps. You know, you know, he uses a cultural example. The metaphor is from measuring out grain in such a way as to ensure that the full volume is given and then some. And friends, this is the blessing that God gives his disciples when we show grace to others. He is gracious with the gracious. And he's generous with the generous. So we're to be gracious with others. Even when they're not gracious with us. That's what we should be known for. So I ask, church family, are we gracious? Would people see us as gracious Christians? Is that the first adjective that someone would use for you? You know, Jimmy there, yes, whenever I talk with him, he's, he's gracious. He doesn't jump to conclusions. He asks clarifying questions. He's patient. He's kind. He's full of grace. And when I ask these questions, just to remind you, you're to answer them for yourself, not for other people. You'll get more out of the sermon when you consider yourself. So are you this type of generous, gracious Christian? And if this isn't you, then friends, you know how to pray this week. I'd have asked God to change us, to make us more like him. And the new life that Jesus brings into our life as followers causes us to be gracious with others. So first, Jesus' followers are gracious with others. Second, Jesus' followers follow Jesus. Look at verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? 
will they not, will they not both fall into a pit? Disciples, not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. You know, it's interesting as you read and reread the section of Luke that Jesus is not only teaching his disciples how they're to live, but he's also drawing attention to the leaders that they follow. Jesus is throwing shade on the Pharisees here. Who is the blind man here? Well, it's the religious leaders, right? Jesus says in another gospel, Matthew 23, he calls them blind guides as he exposes their sinfully way of ruling people. So he turns to his audience and he's warning them to be careful on who they're following. I wonder if the one you're following in your life has led you astray. I found this parable intriguing that Jesus used here in 39. The blind leading the blind people falling into a pit. Where do we see this type of language? We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in Jeremiah. We also see it in Isaiah. Keep your spot here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We talked about this passage last year in December. Isaiah 9, as it looks forward. Isaiah 9, look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide their spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The people to which Isaiah is writing here are, are living in a land filled with darkness and gloom, and they're beginning to see light coming, although they, they haven't seen it yet. And the context here is politically, it's, it's the humbling of the land. It's referring to a military oppression under the Assyrians. And God was sending the Assyrians from the north, coming down to invade the northern kingdom in Israel as consequences for their sin and their sin of following bad leaders. And during this time, Isaiah's time, Assyria comes and he takes God's people, takes Galilee, it says in 2 Kings 15. And it's the beginning of the exile, the beginning of the end for God's people. They need a rescue. The light is going to come, Isaiah says, but, but for now they're being led astray. Look down at verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck him, nor inquire of the Lord of the host. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. It's the same language that Isaiah uses here in Isaiah 9 that Luke uses in 6, what Jesus is saying here. To be swallowed up. And what are they swallowed up in? Darkness, despair, lostness. 
Jesus says, will they not both fall into a pit to be swallowed up, the blind leading the blind? It swallows up clarity. It brings confusion. And Isaiah is saying the leaders of Israel's day were leading them into a pit, causing confusion. David says in Psalm 40, he drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Anytime we walk away from God, from his ways, we fall into a pit. A pit is a picture of destruction. The leaders in Isaiah's day were leading the people to destruction, to torment, to forever separation from God. And Jesus here in Luke 6 is giving us a spiritual picture for his listeners. And he's saying the the Pharisees, the way of these leaders leads to destruction, to the same pit that I warned you many years ago, the same destruction. And those that are being led by false teachers, false leaders, their spiritual leadership is destroying people because they're leading them further and farther away from God. And he's saying, you're living in darkness now. You have walked away from the Lord years ago, and you're being led by false teachers, the Pharisees now. The blind leading the blind. They don't understand truth. See, these leaders in, in, that Luke is challenging, or Jesus is challenging in Luke 6, they have challenged him. They're seeking to destroy Jesus. They want him gone. J.C. Ryle says, a teacher who does not know the way to heaven himself is not likely to lead his hearers to heaven. And he's he's warning these disciples on who they are following. Friends, if you follow Jesus, you'll become more like Jesus. But if you follow a leader that's blind then you will follow him into whatever pit or hole that he walks into. And if your leader, though, sees with moral clarity, then you will follow him into righteousness and truth. The blind leading the blind is dangerous. This parable is a warning on who we should follow in our lives. And it's a warning on how we lead, too. Leaders... Any leaders here, if we teach others, we are responsible for where we take them. And in order to lead, we have to be able to see. We need to see the Bible as the perfect truth of God's holy word. We need to see the majesty of God. We need to see the sinfulness of our own sin and our desperate need for mercy. We need to see Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. We need to see how the Spirit works to bring spiritual change in the lives of others in our lives. Leaders, we need to see Jesus rightly, and only then we will be able to know how to lead people in the way that is right as the Bible instructs us. Otherwise, we will lead people astray. So, for my unbelieving friends that are here and that keep coming back, Let me ask, who are you following in your life? Are you 
following the popular Jesus, the one that agrees with you all the time? You know, that's a dangerous leader to follow. If your Jesus always agrees with you, then you're probably not following the Jesus of the Bible. See, the Jesus of the Bible challenges us. He contradicts us. He calls us to repentance and belief in him. Who are you following? Is your guide for life leading you further and farther away from him into darkness, into a pit? If so, you're living dangerously. You will be like Israel, who lived in darkness and followed blind guides instead of following the Lord. See, their way was one of destruction and desolation. But Jesus' way is to life. So friends, turn from your blind guides that you've been following and turn to Christ. His ways aren't always easier. It's not always leading to comfort. But he promises that we'll be blessed. Right? We just saw it a few weeks ago. Look back at verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And he's saying following Jesus is always worth it. And then he gives us another related proverb here in verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And the point of this principle is, is, is like the teacher, so will be the student. The way people learn a life skill usually is, is through another person teaching. And the same for those that are going to be disciples of Jesus. You have to follow the, the master. The way people learn religion then was to spend time with a wise teacher. The more they spent time with them, the more their lives were patterned after him. This is discipleship. Discipleship, being a disciple, is being a Christian. It's not the second level. It's what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. And when a disciple chose their teacher to follow, they were choosing what kind of person they would become. And this all makes sense if the only teachers of the day were the Pharisees and the scribes, and Jesus is correcting them, their lives and their trajectory, that they're to leave them and to follow him. But he's also calling others, because he is the way to God. He is the way to new life. So, the second is Jesus' followers follow Jesus. Third, Jesus' followers take heed of themselves. So think back with me, the last time you were on an airplane. It's been well over a year for me. I don't miss it. But you know the gist of an airplane, right? You know the the process. When you got on a plane, you know what's going to happen. You find your seat. You know, you you find a good book to read. You put your, your earbuds in your ears with music ready to go. And then you're ready to go, but then they interrupt you, right? With all the directions, they, they come back and the flight attendants begin with their announcements and instructions of the flight. And without fail, they go through how to buckle and unbuckle. 
They, they go to, to explain, uh, you know, the seat cushion to be used as a flotation device. And, and then they say, in case of a, a decrease of cabin pressure, you're to do what? Oh, come on, people. What are you supposed to do? You take the mask and you put it on, right? And, but they tell you a key part in this. You're to take your mask first and put it on. See, I was fine with that until we had kids. And then my first thought was in that. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem right. I think as a dad with a daughter, I think my first inclination is I want to take the mask and put it on her. But that's not good, especially if I pass out. We're to take the mask and put it on ourselves, right? I'm no help. I'm no help to them if I don't do this first. And here are the disciples being taught by their master. They're being trained to lift off in ministry. And Jesus is teaching them to take heed of themselves before they help others. And how important these two verses are to the Christian life. Look at them with me. Last two verses this morning. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus here in these last few verses is warning his disciples of the pitfalls of spiritual blindness. But the danger here is that, that, that both of bad judgment and bad eyesight... And the problem in these two verses is not that the person cannot see at all, but he cannot see as well as he thinks he can see. He thinks that his eyesight is so good that he can clean a speck out of someone else's eye, yet he overlooks the big hunk of wood hanging out of his own eye. I find this illustration of Jesus hilarious, right? Just picture it in your mind for a moment. People with a speck in their eyes while others are walking around with a two-by-four sticking out theirs. You know, it's um, a, a dramatic picture that Jesus is painting for us. See, a speck would be a little splinter of wood or straw, and the log actually is not just a two-by-four. No, it's a, a main beam of a building. That's what he means by log here. I mean, the whole picture is laughable. It's absurd, right? None of you are laughing. I remember a few months into my first ministry, it's the Lord's, the Lord's test to make sure, Jeff, are you sure you want to be a pastor, okay? I was just a month or two into ministry, and in the church I grew up in, and I'm so thankful it's not the way here, but in the church I grew up in, on the platform on the stage, the chairs were up there facing the congregation, and that's where the pastors sat. How intimidating is that, right? You know, you walk in and they're just staring at you. So I'm new to ministry, and I sit there, and I just hated it every week. And, and a few months come in, and this, I get a call on a Monday. It's never good to get a call on a Monday. And, and the, the woman on the phone says uh, she had some issues she wanted to discuss with me from Sunday. And I thought, well, what did I do on Sunday? I didn't preach. I didn't do anything. I, I think I just read the scripture. I couldn't remember what I did. And she said to me on the phone, that I wasn't looking pastoral enough during the prayer by the senior pastor. She said she was looking at me on the, the stage during the prayer, mind you, and said I didn't seem that interested. 
And I kind of snorted back a laugh in my immaturity and said, it seems like you weren't interested either in the prayer. (laughs) That offended her. I was offensive. I admit it. But then these verses came to mind. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Do not notice the log that's in your own eye. See, the thing that Jesus is bringing to the disciples' attention, and hopefully to ours, is the temptation to hypocrisy, to being a hypocrite. We are in danger of committing this great sin whenever we fail to see ourselves as we truly are, pretending that we're not selfish or greedy or proud or guilty of other log-sized sins. We are hypocrites when we minimize our sin and go after someone else's. See, he isn't outlawing outlawing judging others. He's just reorienting his disciples to the order. He's saying, first, judge yourself rightly. Second, and only after we've spent time considering ourselves, because when we spend time considering ourselves and considering our sin, it usually affects our heart, only then do you go to your brother. And, And to focus on trying to to love and correct them. Jesus says, your brother. This is someone of the same family, some same tribe, same group of fellowship. So the question is, where's your family? Who's, Who's in your family? Your blood relatives, your church family. Those that you've covenanted with. And I can go on long, I won't. I just will say this. It says, your brother not every person on Facebook or Twitter. So I want to just help you, friends, because I love you, okay? I I love you, and your life will be more drama-free if you just keep scrolling. Not every person on your friend list or Twitter follower list needs your wisdom or correction. We've got lots of people right here that we can build into that we can focus on and love and pray with. And we need to do a better job of doing that. So give up the Facebook rants that go into the ether and call a friend. Call a fellow member. Here, I have a suggestion for you, okay? Call someone today in the church and say, can we read the Bible one chapter a week together and just talk about the chapter and pray for one another. 10 minutes. Pick a short chapter. Every week. And, and, and get to know each other. Build some rapport with one another. Pray for one another. And then when you see something after you've considered yourself, then you can, you can gently come to them. We need to get off this, this train that just keeps going and calling out the sins of others on, on, out, in, out there on internet. And focus our attention right here to the people that God has gifted us in this family. Well, I need to conclude. There's more to say, I know, but here's a few challenges. First, we need to be slow to condemn people. Remember the words that Jesus instructs us in verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. And when we've been wounded by another, when we've been seriously injured by words or attitudes, our natural posture of the heart is what? You want to call thunder and lightning to come down on them. 
And Jesus is saying in the context of the sermon, you need to love them. You need to think well of them. You need to be slow to judge. You need to do the opposite of fleshing uh, instincts to to go and go after them. That's self-protection, friends. And we want to put a wall up. We want to defend ourselves. We want to attack. And Jesus says you need to slow your roll. Don't, Don't let that be your first instinct. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful as a church. Paul warned the Galatian believers, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There are married folks, maybe seated here, that are going after one another. And Paul gives a warning here that jump to conclusions way too quick and assign motives. And Paul is telling us in Galatians to be careful. And Jesus says, pull back. Some of you siblings, because I know you've all been home a lot together, right? So brothers and sisters, kids, maybe you've checked out the whole time. Come back, okay, just for a moment. Some of you are destroying each other with your words. And you're quick to judge. You're quick to assign a motive to your brother and sister. And Jesus is saying, pull back. You know, this is on the heels of him calling us to love. And your brother and sister may seem like an enemy. And what does Jesus say to do? He tells us to love them. Kids, you need to recognize that Jesus is rebuking you. He's rebuking us. And we need to be patient and gracious towards one another. And then Jesus says we need to be quick to forgive. And when people have been flamboyant in their anger against us and our views, we want the same to go back to them. And friends, that destroys people. It destroys the very people that Christ died for. And that's not how Christ instructs his followers to respond. He says we're to forgive. We, all, we usually just want to forgive those that are soft and gentle in their differing views. We want to forgive people that are soft and kind, and, and so we lash back out. Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So may that be our posture towards one another. And he also says we need to be consistent in looking at our own sins first. Friends, our sins should bother us more than the sins of others. If you find yourself constantly critical of others, but rarely critical of yourself, constantly concerned about others who need to repent and not spending time considering your own repentance you most certainly violated Jesus' teaching here. We have plenty to concern ourselves with. And we need to be experts at repenting before we're experts at motivating others to repent. It's not that we need to be perfect to give spiritual help. But it does mean that we need to repent of our own sin before we can lead anyone else in their repentance. It's only when our hearts have been broken by our own sin against God that we'll have the humble grace to lead others 
in repentance. And last, friends, we need to keep following Jesus. We need to stick close to him, friends. And Jesus sees us as we truly are. He does see that very last speck of sin in us. And because he's without sin, he's able to judge us perfectly, perfectly righteous. But get this, Christian friends, he doesn't condemn us. He's not disgusted with you. He's calling you to himself. See, God isn't like you. He's so far above. Even the most intense of human love is but a faint echo of heaven's overflowing abundance of love towards us. His hurtful thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive or think of. And all that's dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but taking your mess to him. So friends, we need to go to Jesus. We need to keep following him. And go to him now as I pray. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. And we ask that you would help us to see ourselves so we can see how different that we are from you. You are altogether beautiful and perfect and holy and majestic. Your power runs so deep and you're able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. And we do confess that we have been judgmental. We have looked for the worst in our family and friends, and we have jumped to conclusions to protect ourselves and accuse others. We are guilty, and we see it this morning. But we also see your son standing in our place. All of the guilt and sin that we would have to bear on our own is now placed on your beloved son. And because his death on the cross, we get his righteousness. Father, how can this be? How can we, your frail and failing people, be holy now in your sight? It's hard to fathom. Once your enemy, now your friend. We thank you. You are our great God. Your name is above all names. And you are worthy of all of our praise. So may you help us live for you this week, for your glory and not our own. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.